My name is Eric Burke. And I'm Nipper Reed, and this is the Field Herpin Podcast. Over the coming months, myself and Nipper will be deep diving into all aspects of field herping. We'll be looking at target species, specific locations, herping in all parts of the world, equipment, safety, logistics, trip planning, live field reports, photography, snake bite, field herping pioneers, and just about anything else we can think of. So why field herping? I think I can speak for both of us when I say field herping is a passion. Nothing comes close to the thrill of chasing down a new species. The camaraderie of bonding on a field trip with the right people, and above all, the experience of seeing the reptiles and amphibians in their natural environment displaying their natural behavior. It's completely addictive. I have been interested in herp since I was a kid, and I have steadily built up a group of carpet pythons along with other Australian species. My collection is my release from my day-to-day, my escape from reality, if you will. However, as with a lot of reptile keepers, I wanted more. I was drawn to want to observe the species that I love so much in their environment, doing what they naturally do. There's a certain magic in finding your favorite species in the wild, being able to see the what, where, and why of their day-to-day lives. And really, that's what drew me to reptiles in the first place. In 2019, I was lucky enough to go with some really good friends, find and photograph the rare Owen Pelly python, being one of the few Americans to find this elusive species. So Eric, I've got to ask, how does it feel to see a species so rarely encountered in the wild that even most Australian herpers haven't seen it? We were taking one last pass at trying to find the Owen Pelly python. The atmosphere that night felt different. I'm not sure what it was, but I remember walking through the escarpment thinking, tonight's the night. We had a discussion earlier when the sun was going down about where would you think to look for the Owen Pelly python? I think it was Keith that said we should be looking up. So we walked through the escarpment in the dark and we all had our torches pointed up. We came to a spot and Keith was the first to see the head coming off the rock ledge and yelled snake. I remember all of us looking up and seeing a snake coming out. At first it looked like some type of anteresia, but it kept coming out and more and more snake kept coming out. We knew it, 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 there was no way that it was an anteresia. I remember us thinking, is it? No, it can't be. Wait a minute. It, it just keeps coming out. It has to be. What else could it be? It has to be the Owen Pelly Python. Well, as you can imagine, we were jumping up and down in pure joy. The snake was headed towards a big tree that was right next to the escarpment. It took a perching position for what we presumed was, uh, it was coming out to hunt bats that night. The bats were flying out of the caves. So not only did we find one of the most elusive Australian pythons, we saw it hunting in a tree that was right next to this beautiful rock escarpment. That is an incredibly exclusive club. Just to put into perspective for those of you that aren't familiar with how difficult it is to see this species, I think it's probably fair to say that Eric, Owen, Keith and Rob are possibly the only Americans to ever see that species in the wild. 
And that is an amazing achievement. Utterly top field herping. And if I'm honest, I'm insanely jealous. So as everybody knows, this past year has been hard for field herping because travel is very restricted due to COVID. I was just chatting to the bloke that I normally, one of my friends that I normally go herping with. And day before yesterday marked the year, exactly a year since we was last field herping abroad. That's shit. It's the first time in the whole year where I've never done a field foreign field herping trip. So we had to come up with a different plan. We were actually two days away from heading to Western Australia for our third trip to field herp, what I called Mission Imbricata, before COVID shut it down. So we decided to herp in our own backyard. We went to places like the Pine Barrens, West Texas. We even went in our own backyard to where we could find things like timber rattlesnakes and copperheads, garter snakes and DK snakes. It just gave me a whole new appreciation for your herps that you have right in your own area. 100%. I think North American herps are probably the, the, the best herping that I could do at the moment. As you know, I've seen most of the European stuff Australia is interesting to me, but nowhere near as interested as North America. I think the range of species that you have, um, and you've got iconic species as well. You've got healers, you've got rattlesnakes, you've got garter snakes, you've got neurodia, you've got the lyre snakes, you've got the racers, whereas Australia has got a lot of snakes, but they're very, very simpler, a lot of um, very similar, a lot of elapids. The range and the quality of herping in the U.S. is amazing, and I think you all take it for granted. So what about you, Nipper? How did you get started in field herping? So I've been herping for three decades now. Uh, I was inspired as a younger chap, just finding local herps whilst out hill walking. And I'm so old that the internet was actually in its infancy, so there wasn't a great deal of information around. Um, I went online in the early days, and I discovered a thing called Club 100, and this was set up by a herping legend, Jeroen Spreboek, uh, who is coincidentally now a chum of mine. But back in the day, the ethos was to see over 100 different species of herp. At that time, 100 different species of herp was considered a huge amount because not many people were actually out field herping in those days. We're talking 90s. Um, However, this evolved over the years and the European top listers were born and a race was on to be the first person to see and photograph every European species of herp in the wild. Now, so far, only three people have managed to complete this challenge. Jeroen, uh, who's Belgian, uh, another Belgian guy called Jan van der Voort, who I know, uh, the fabulous Bobby Bock um, was the first Dutch guy, um, and I was on key to be the first uh, British chap to complete the list uh, in 2020. However, COVID reared its ugly head, um, and unfortunately, be with the travel ban, it's left me with five species left to see. As soon as the travel ban's lifted, I will uh, hopefully travel to the remaining destinations, which is Milos Island uh, in Greece, and a couple of bits to see in Samos, which is off the coast of Turkey and uh, Romania as well. And as soon as all those have been ticked off and I've actually finished the the, uh, the European list, I'm going to hit the US extremely hard. 
you've got around 35 species of rattlesnake. I intend to see them all as soon as possible. I've been fortunate enough to herp all over the world in over 30 countries, uh, as well as many island chains uh, in Asia, the Middle East, Australasia, Europe, and the Caribbean, and very, very briefly in the US. Field herping is my absolute passion, herp the US, and see my most iconic species, which I haven't seen, which is the Western Diamondback. So that's where we are now. That's why I love field herping, the same as you, being out there, the excitement of trying to find your target species. I love the logistics of planning. I love the logistics of actually operating out in the field. And nothing beats tracking down against all the odds a single species that you're trying to find. The thrill of that is amazing, but it's the memories of places you've been with other people. It just makes it such a fabulous experience. So stay with us, as in the forthcoming episodes, we can really share our passion on the increasingly popular pastime of field herping. So whilst field herping can be the best of times, it can be a pretty dangerous hobby. By the nature of the species, if venomous, the locations you find them in, mostly are remote. You have extreme temperatures, poor weather, the potential for accidents, foreign diseases, tiredness, hunger, and all manner of interesting things. Sometimes it can turn real bad real quick. So tonight, we look at field herping when it goes wrong. Firstly, let's look at the dangers of the species themselves. Most field herpers love a venomous stink, be it a pit viper, a crate, cobra, or rattler. We are a sucker for them and often put ourselves at a great risk to secure that perfect photograph. We are going to hear from Frank Dashendow. Frank is a French wildlife photographer, one of the best in the world. He loves photographing herbs. He is close to being the first Frenchman to finish the Euro list. However, Frank spends most of his time globetrotting to some of the most hostile and extreme localities in the world, searching for the perfect photo. Frank's photos are really another level and are the stuff that most people aspire to. He recently won the Invertebrate category in the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award and had been published in countless books and magazines. We have included a link to his Instagram account in the bio to see for yourself. I've been lucky enough to hurt with Frank uh, in Europe, and he's always a pleasure to travel with. Frank was a part of a Euro team, including Bobby Bach and Jorun Spreberek, that were on a month-long field herping trip in the Amazon. English is not Frank's first language, and Nipper is going to narrate Frank's account as dictated to him. On the 9th of July, after photographing a fungus, I joined my friend Peter kneeling on the trail photographing a snake that descended a thorny trunk. 
We all thought it was Oxyrophus melanogenes, a coral snake mimic, of course completely harmless. In fact, our guide had found one the night before. Unfortunately, we're indeed in the presence of Hemprectis coral snake, a very similar species possessing extremely dangerous neurotoxic venom. After I photographed it on a tree, Peter took it with his bare hands without a problem and handed it to me. Seeking a place to photograph it, I first caught it with my right hand and then my left and was bitten in the ring finger without delay. I've bitten by all kinds of animals, but this pain was certainly the strongest of all. Micrurus hemprechii, or hemprex coral snake, is a highly venomous fossorial species of a lapid, named after German naturalist Wilhelm Friedrich Hemprich. Micrurus hemprechii is native to every South American country north of the Tropic of Capricorn, where they inhabit dense tropical and subtropical jungles. Unlike the coral snakes of eastern North America, there is no childish rhyme to identify Micrurus hemprechii. It is unlike any other tricolored snake in the Americas. The primary color is a velvety rich black or slate gray. Broad bands of high fluorescent yellow or orange mark the animal's dorsal and typically across the nape. In between each broadband is a thin stitching of white or gray. The underside of Micrurus hemprechii is blotched with the same high color markings of orange and yellow. And similar to other fossorial species, their tail can be flattened and elevated to be used as a flag to ward off predation. Despite being incredibly venomous, this species feeds exclusively on velvet worms, a predatory primitive slug-like panarthropod that inhabits the jungle floor. Contrary to modern myth, coral snakes are not rear-fanged, nor must they chew on their prey to inject venom. They are elapids, cousins to cobras, mambas, and crates, and their fangs are fixed at the front of their mouth, generally resulting in a guaranteed envenomation. Due to their elusive nature and remote habitats, envenomations from Micrurus hemprechii are seldomly seen, and most treatments for bites are generalized as one of the 80 subspecies of Micrurus. Symptoms of a Micrurus envenomation are usually neurological. Uncontrollable drooping of the eyes, double vision, and difficulty swallowing are key early signs of an envenomation, followed by intense bouts of neurological pain, muscle paralysis, and eventually death from respiratory failure. Anyone who believes they've been bitten by a coral snake should seek immediate medical assistance and administered antivenom. The pain was incredibly dazzling, heartbreaking. I immediately dropped the snake and blocked it with my foot. I pressed with all my strength on the bitten finger in order to expel the blood and maximum venom. The snake on the ground then raised its tail, which was a typical warning of a coral snake. Our guide confirmed it was a coral snake. It had never been found in this region before, which explains the confusion. I immediately returned to camp close by, where an American group was staying. Camp was over an hour away. From then on, everything happened so quickly. Spasms, vomiting cramps, unendurable pain in the finger, my arm and my chest. I asked for a tourniquet and Peter ran three kilometres very quickly to get scalpels in my kit. He came back with a razor and Lewis, our translator, cut my finger to expel as much blood and venom as possible. I swallowed pills to calm my heart and drank gallons of sugary water to keep my throat functioning. Then the endless waiting times to catch a boat to reach hospital in Iquitos. After an hour and a half, I was unable to walk and I was helped out of the first boat by my friends. I emptied both ends, unbearable pain in the stomach. Violent pains made it impossible for me to get up. I was bent in half and the slightest shock was horrible for me. I've never felt pain so painful and incapacitating. The nausea was still present more than two hours later, but the difficulty of vomiting was very painful. Although my condition was deplorable, I remained conscious all the time, 
and I could speak, articulate and swallow, although it required an effort to speak because my throat was very bad. After two hours, my abdominal belt felt incredibly constricted, painful, and my stomach was swollen like a balloon, so much so that it was unbearable and I had to defecate on all fours so I could drain everything out. The situation was rather embarrassing. At the same time, my breathing was getting harder and harder, especially just before arriving at the hospital, as if my swollen belly was pressed against the lungs and prevented them from filling up. My body was under pressure like a bottle of beer, too hectic. Alas, approaching Iquitos, the water level was very low, so it was impossible to reach the city located one kilometre away by boat, which was stranded on the mud. I cannot tell you what was going through my mind as we made our long detour on that dark night. With every minute without antivenom, is very, very dangerous with this type of bite. I arrived at hospital after two hours and received emergency care and antivenom. From my memory, my condition has improved a little before the administration of the antivenom, but it's difficult to know if I could really have done without it. Slowly, I found my normal state, and after a day and a half of hospitalisation only, I could leave, fortunately without any ongoing effects. Happily, Frank made a full recovery and continues to herp the globe. He is very careful at handling snakes now. It's easy to sit at home in comfort, not tired and hungry, not sleep deprived, and think how could that happen. But out in the field, many things can affect judgment. Let's hear from the world-renowned field herper, the Austrian Mario Swiger. Mario manages the biggest Euro herping website, as well as the best Euro herp site online for photos. We'll put a link in the bio for both sites. English is not Mario's first language, so Eric will read an account of an accident with a venomous snake in Turkey, resulting in the loss of Mario's arm and his long-term hospitalisation. We posted a picture of Mario's arm in the bio if anyone wants to see firsthand the damage a mountain viper can do. Mario was photographing Monte Vipira in the Turkish mountains. On May 4th, 1982, near the southern Turkish city of Iskendron, I've been bitten by a large Macrovipera levitina in the lower right arm. The viper was about 150 to 160 centimeters long and had the diameter of approximately five to six centimeters. The punctures of the teeth has been about five centimeters upside the wrist at the inner side of the arm. The Levantine viper, Macrovipera levitina, is a heavy-bodied terrestrial viper endemic to the ancient historical region of Levant, commonly referred to now as the Middle East. Contrary to this viper's historical namesake, its geographical range spans from Algeria in North Africa and east of the Mediterranean, branching deep into Central Asia all the way to the Kashmir. Due to its vast range and diverse phenotypes, this genus is constantly under review. Nevertheless, five species are currently recognized. Macrovipera lebitina average three to five feet in length and encompass a wide range of habitats from dry rocky outcrops to dense pine woodlands. Oftentimes appearing similar in coloration and pattern to other vipers of the region, Macrovipera libitina is usually recognized rapidly by a blunt snout, lack of head patterning, ominous high brow line, and overall size. The primary base colors of Macrovipera libitina are brown, tan, and pinkish gray. Hugging the vertebral line of the snake's dorsal are a series of hemmingbone saddles of red, brown, or orange. All species of Macrovipera libitina are egg-laying and vary in clutch size from 4 to 20 eggs on average. 
depending on geographical range and size of the mother. Being one of the most venomous snakes in the Middle East, the venom of Macrovipera libitina is a legitimate cocktail of toxins. This venom is extremely hemodynamic, causing massive hemorrhaging, edema, and necrosis of muscle tissue. The venom of Macrovipera also contains all four known snake venom metalloproteases, bonding itself onto zinc ions of the body and rapidly spreading and destroying cells and tissue. Aside from intense pain and swelling, bouts of hypotension and the inability to breathe are frequent side effects. Should an envenomation from Macrovipera libitina occur, immediately medical assistance and antivenin is imperative. Immediately after the bite, I made a torsion on the upper arm. No slices of the punctures had been made because of the length of the teeth, approximately 25 millimeters. Within 20 minutes, I returned to the car. Already there was a marked swelling and a dark discoloration up to half of the upper arm. After a half hour drive, we arrived at the hospital in Iskandron. According to the statement of facts and the consideration of a physician, I received 20 milliliters of antivenom injected into the buttocks. Since no improvement had occurred, the swelling had reached the shoulder, the entire arm had a yellow-green color to it, and there were blisters on the fist. My friend tried to get me more antivenom. This needed about two hours, however. When the nurse injected me with the first serum, she saw the new ampoules. She would have us believe that the antivenom was wrong. Now I got new 20 milliliters of antivenom injected into the buttocks. She also told us that we could be given no further assistance and referred us to a hospital in Andana, 150 kilometers away. We took this trip in our own camp. Here again, I got 30 milliliters of the latter antivenom, but no further treatments. My condition deteriorated rapidly by this time. I had no secondary poisoning symptoms like diarrhea or vomiting. Late in the evening of May 5th, 36 hours after the snake bite, a massive oedema in the right arm, left arm, and body, a fasciotomy of the right forearm had been done. So far, despite all measures, I was in mortal danger. My friends called my parents in Austria, which in turn immediately alerted the Austrian air ambulance. A more detailed investigation in the aircraft revealed a severely impaired renal function and also greatly reduced clotting ability of the blood to escape into the tissue. This led to a fall in blood pressure to extremely low levels and to circulatory collapse. Amputation of the right arm could initially be waived. On May 7th at 4.30 a.m., I arrived in Vienna and was immediately in the first medical university hospital launched. The findings on admission showed the following picture, massive edema of the upper body, including both arms. The fasciotomy showed a blackish discoloration of the muscle. In addition, a reduction of protein in the blood, and I also had a decrease of the blood platelets. Considered purely subjective, my condition was probably somewhat relieved as I once again was reminded of the details. What was impossible between the arrival at the hospital in Adana and the return flight to Vienna. I received immediate therapy in Vienna, antivenom, albumin, fresh blood, herapin, dopamine, antibiotic covers, and tetanus prophylaxis. On May 7th at 8 p.m. I was operated on. An incision was made in the right forearm 
when the fasciotomy was opened, they found that the arm muscles are completely necrotic. A high amputation of the right arm was therefore carried out. After the surgery, I came to the ICU and was ventilated. They found out a necrosis of the lungs. Noticeably, I improved after the artificial respiration was discontinued on the next day. On the second day after the surgery, I felt much weaker. Also, I felt disturbances in the left arm and in both legs. Both of my legs were dead, as well as the knees. I could not move at all. A neurological examination showed parathesia in all extremities, as well as complete loss of motor function in the legs. Again, I received an infusion of 30 milliliters of antivenom. It was assumed that the necrotic disorders was due to the constant presence of snake venom. An examination of the spinal cord for possible damage ran negative. After eight days in the ICU, I was transferred to the normal station. I was released a further four weeks later in home care. Since I was told that I could expect an improvement in paralysis in some weeks or months, I was very confident that I would get better. I was bedridden when I spent a week at home. Every night I had fevers that came up to above 40 degrees Celsius. I was taken to a hospital in Salzburg. I had a condition called polyneuritis in which each touch of my body brought a lot of pain. Against the inflammation of the nerves, I got infusions in the hospital. After three weeks in the hospital, I had to continue treatment at home with tablets. I now had until the end of December in a wheelchair. In the left hand, sensory disturbance had subsided to the fingertips. At home and in the hospital, I continued treatment of the paralysis. I could still not move the right foot from the knee down. Even now in some places, I experience pain and thermal differences. Unfortunately, in early August, I got serum hepatitis due to high doses of fresh blood, which again, put me in the hospital for three weeks. Since I was almost only fed by infusions, I had lost a lot of weight. After being discharged from the hospital, I started the rehabilitation and physical therapy brought massive improvement. I've improved significantly over the past six weeks. I started in March of 1983. 10 months after the bite, I am almost normal again. The power in my legs as of March of 1983 is approximately 50%. In addition, sensitivity disturbances in parts arise at both thighs and in both feet, and the movement of the toes is still reduced. To this day, Mario still is troubled by the effects of that bite. So the question is, Nipper, have you had any near misses with the venomous snake? Sadly, yes. 
I came close to getting bitten in Montenegro, which is a remote mountainous area in Europe. Uh, the species in question was one of the bigger European vipers and one of the most venomous, which is uh, Vipera amodites. The Eurasian long-nosed adder, Vipera amodites, is one of the more common vipers found in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Their distribution spans almost the entirety of the Balkans, ranging from the Italian Alps as far north as central Romania and through most of northern Turkey and into western Georgia. This expansive range from the Mediterranean to Transcaucasia has produced five subspecies currently acknowledged, the most commonly encountered being that of Vipera amodites amodites. Vipera amodites are instantly recognized by their long nose protrusion, reminiscent of that of a rhino. They are found in a wide array of colors and patterns. The primary base colors are tan, brown, and gray, with interconnecting saddles of brown and black going down the snake's vertebrae, forming a near geometric zigzag pattern. Some specimens are extremely pale, almost white in base color, such as Vipera amodites gregorwallenrii of southern Austria, or near pink in color with thin, divided saddles like that of Vipera amodites trancocasiasia from the Dabas of central Georgia. Vipera amodites are old-world true vipers and lack the heat-recepting pits commonly found with vipers of the western hemisphere. They are typically considered a montane species, reaching altitudes as high as 6,000 feet in elevation. Due to their considerable drops in temperature in Eastern Europe, Vipera amodites typically hibernate in underground burrows in winter for two to four months. Once the snow has melted and spring has arrived, these snakes emerge from their burrows hungry and ready to breed. During the spring, males will engage in combat with one another. Males will raise the front half of their body erected and intertwine with one another to compete for dominance and breeding rights. Females are live-bearing and typically give birth to 10 to 20 young. The venom of Vipera amodites can be quite variable. Arguably the most toxic and medically significant viper in Europe, different phenotypes of this species exhibit different potencies of their venom. Their venom, although extremely dangerous, is less catastrophic when compared to other species of Vipera from around the world. And despite being toxic to humans and other mammals, Vipera amodites venom is almost useless against reptiles and amphibians. Human deaths from envenomations are rare, especially with the use of antivenin. Symptoms of a legitimate envenomation can be intense pain, uncontrollable muscle spasms, and considerable swelling of the affected area. A nerve response of pins and needles is commonly observed, along with bouts of vertigo. And although death and loss of limb are rare with Vipera amidites bites, medical help and antivenin must be administered as soon as possible. Yeah, Montenegro is an underdeveloped area in Europe. It's quite um, backward without being unkind. Unspoiled is a better word for it, I would say. It's borders Greece and Macedonia. It's quite a mountainous area and it's got some fabulous species. It's got Viperberus bosniensis, um, it's got some endemic rock lizards, Proclieti mountain lizard, it's got some fantastic amphibians uh, and it's also got some very nice examples of Vipera amodites, the um, horned viper of Europe for those of you who've probably seen pictures of it. They're very popular in collections um, sort of silver with a zigzag stripe or orange with a zigzag stripe and a nice horned nose. Um, so we was up in the mountains. Uh, our target species was actually Viperberus bosniensis, which we were looking for. And uh, I was in an idyllic sort of setting. It looked like something off a chocolate box. So if you can imagine you're walking around a lake at about uh, five or 6,000 metres high, uh, you've got a complete ring of mountains around you, the north faces of which are all snow-capped, and you've got low juniper bushes all the way around, and it's nice and sunny and hot. And I saw the tail of a snake disappearing between some rocks in a rock pile. 
had short gloves on. I normally hurt with long gauntlets on if I'm going for very venomous species, but I had short gloves on that just come up above the level of my wrists. And stupidly, I grabbed the tail of the snake in my excitement of trying to catch a target species. And it spanned backwards and it bit just the edge of the glove. Another millimetre on and it would have bit me full on the forearm. Conservative estimate, I was about six to six and a half hours drive away from the nearest hospital. So that would have meant people carrying me off a mountainside down to where we parked the car, which was probably about an hour's walk. And then a sort of six hour drive, no motorways, poor quality roads to a hospital that might not have been to Europeans or American standards. So it wasn't a great day out. But we live and learn. It'll be hooked from now on and we won't be excited and grabbing the tails of snakes when we're outside. I was absolutely mortified when it happened and I just sat there uh, shaking like a shitting dog, as the saying goes, just taking in what had happened. My friends joined me and we did actually manage to catch the snake and I've got some fabulous uh, pictures of it. I can post one of those in the bio so you can actually see the snake that, uh, that nearly finished my herping career. Another incident that was a close call, I was herping again. It's the same species. I was herping for Vipera amodites in Slovenia with a friend of mine, um, Thomas Jaeger. Thomas looks like a bear trapper. He's about six foot five, massive chap with a great big long beard, Viking-like hair, and he probably weighs a conservative estimate of about 20 stone. I don't know what that is in pounds. You'll have to work it out. He's a big lad. He got bitten through the glove whilst handling an amodites. Fortunately, the venom pulled in the glove rather than the venom going into his hand. He was very lucky because trying to get somebody the size of Thomas off of a mountainside when there was only two of us, would have been practically impossible. I can't carry 20 stone down the side of a mountain. And again, the nearest hospital there was probably a two-hour drive away. So field herping, if you're looking for venomous species, you've got to take that into account. It can be very, very dangerous. Just don't get excited. Decent gloves, decent hooks. So apart from the dangerous reptiles, what else can go wrong? Well, how about being in the middle of nowhere where the nearest hospital is hours or even days away, and then you contract a serious disease? This exact same situation had happened to him. I was climbing Mount Kinabalu, uh, which is the one of the highest mountains in South Asia. I was looking for some Timurosaurus vipers, the bento geckos and tree frogs, it's kind of speciality of that sort of area. I didn't, I didn't realize, but before I started climbing Kinabalu, I think I picked up malaria in Malaysia, where I'd been a couple of weeks before. Kinabalu is a, a crazy place. If you Google it, there's a lot of stuff on Kinabalu. It's quite famous, Mount Kinabalu, because a group of soldiers, some British soldiers and some Malaysian soldiers, went missing on Mount Kinabalu. They were lost for, I think, about nine days in one of the gullies on there. It's, it looks like something out of Jurassic Park. Uh, it's very primeval, it's very prehistoric. Um, the Borneian people believe that's where all the dead ancestors go to Kinabalu, and it's got a really eerie feeling about it. It's always full of mist. Uh, the bottom of it is thick jungle with these massive river gorges in it. The top of it is bare rock with just water running down it. It's a very, very spooky place. It does look like some haunted environment. Initially, I started at the lower slopes and we were looking for frogs. 
uh, in the pools and it I didn't feel great, but you know yourself when you've traveled halfway around the world, you do feel a bit spun out sometimes. Um, so I just put it down to a bit of jet lag and you know not eating properly. And when you're herping, as you know, you don't eat properly, you don't sleep properly and uh, you do get run down. So we started up the mountain and I got about a quarter of the way up this mountain and it's, I think it comes in at about 13,000 feet, this mountain. So about a quarter of the way up and I just started to feel really headachey um, and just flu-like, which I just thought, oh, I picked up some bug, I won't worry about it. And we carried on and we, I was photographing, uh, there's a lot of uh, carnivorous plants, species that grow in the lower slopes because it's, it's quite humid, it's a bit cloud foresty. So I was photographing carnivorous plants and there's a lot of lizards running around, a lot of gecko species and uh, tree squirrels and stuff like that. And then as we got to about halfway, I was feeling weaker and weaker. And I thought, I can't be suffering from altitude sickness because I've climbed in the Himalayas before and I've been up a lot higher than that and I never suffered altitude sickness at all. Um, but I was getting blinding headaches, shortness of breath, and it got to the stage where we had to make a decision. Uh, we worked out how much daylight we had left, whether I could safely get down to the bottom in daylight. I didn't want to get caught outside on the side of the mountain, because even though it's tropical, it does get extremely cold. Um, or whether we would push to the summit, which had some basic hut type accommodation that you could spend the night in. So we decided to push for the summit. The higher up we got, the weaker and more painful it became to breathe. So in the end, I was taking two or three steps and having to sit down, rest, take another two or three steps, rest. Um, my eyesight started to fail. Uh, it's quite scary. Um, finally managed to get to the top, thinking that I had just had really bad altitude sickness. And uh, I lay down, tried to sleep. I just took loads of Diamox, which is an altitude sickness drug, um, which I thought would help. Um, which speeds your heart rate up. Um, so I spent the night with my heart racing, urinating every 20 minutes or so, because Dymox just speeds all your processes up. And at first light, um, started the long journey down, managed to get to the bottom, where fortunately, at the bottom of the mountain, we met a park ranger who realized I was in trouble, um, put me in the back of his pickup, and we drove he drove us back to where we were staying and i started to feel slightly better so uh, i said to my partner at the time i'm just gonna have a little sleep and then uh, i'll probably be grand uh, so i went to sleep and then uh, i woke up i said oh i feel a little bit better and she said uh, do you know what day it is and i said it's tuesday she said no it's actually wednesday you slept 24 hours straight through and i said oh, i'm fine now uh, so i got up and i went to photograph some monitor lizards which were in the in the area and uh, I just collapsed and then uh, they got me some medical attention at that point my temperature was uh, 104 and a half which is reasonably dangerous I was hallucinating I thought everyone was trying to kill me so while they're trying to put me into the back of a cab I'm trying to fight everybody off fortunately I was so weak I didn't have, have much effect on people uh, and I was driven through the jungle um, to a very rudimentary hospital in the hospital, um, there was only one English-speaking doctor, which fortunately was an American doctor, who was doing a sort of sabbatical over there. And I was out of it. I can just remember laying on the trolley and seeing all the lights buzzing past as they, they took me in there. 
and I heard her say to my partner at the time, um, we're going to pump him full of antibiotics to help. We think he's got malaria. Um, if the antibiotics take hold in the next hour or so, things should be good. If they don't take hold, he's probably going to die, which is not what you want to hear when you feel like hammered shit and you're laying there in the nude on a trolley. Um, fortunately, they did take hold, um, and I spent a week in hospital on my own with nobody else that spoke English except for the doctor that came around once a day. Um, I lost about a stone in weight in a week from shivering and shaking and just sweating and generally being rather unwell. Um, hospital was amazing. In the daytime it was deathly quiet and at night it was deafening because the jungle came literally to the window of the hospital and in the daytime there wasn't much noise but when the lights went out the jungle came alive and it was hard to sleep with the noises that were, that were coming through the jungle. Um, I then had to rest for a week. I left hospital, I had to rest for a week in a hotel before they'd let me fly home. I flew back to the UK and I had to have three months off work. Um, and I, I literally just, I couldn't even walk the dog. Just a 20 minute walk and I was exhausted and that lasted for a long time. So, uh, you, you know, you need to take this into account. When you're herping in foreign countries, they've got some nasty diseases that can just creep up on you. I was taking anti-malaria tablets. It didn't really, that particular strain didn't seem to have an effect on it. That's something that I didn't even think about being prepared in case you have a medical emergency as far as being prepared financially if you're going to run into a problem like that uh, and how people wouldn't treat you uh, if you don't have a credit card with money on it. Well, funnily enough, if you have an accident in any European country, they will treat you regardless of nationality for nothing. Borneo runs on the American system, and even though I was dying, they checked my credit card limit before they'd treat me. Fortunately, I had my uh, gold card with me, and I take really good travel insurance. That's you know, don't scrimp on things like travel insurance because I had to get medical flights home. I had all the different phone calls back and forth to the UK. I had to stay an extra week in a hotel that I wasn't expecting so on and so forth, and that was all covered on the medical insurance. But, yeah, they the first thing they wanted to know, even though I was, you know, in an absolute shit order on a trolley, was do you have a credit card? And as soon as I got the, uh, the gold card out, everybody became smiley and did what they were supposed to do. Ari Flagel is one of the most badass herpers in the world. He travels to Papua New Guinea, which is one of the most remote places on the planet. He travels here in search of the Baldwin's python. Ari is one of the few people in the world to not only find this majestic python, but to carry out legitimate field studies on one of the most misunderstood species of python. This segment is one from the back episode of Moray Python Radio. Ari had just come back from a trip to Papua New Guinea where he was able to photograph Bowen's pythons hatching out of a clutch of eggs wrapped by the mother. Unfortunately, he got very sick on this trip to the point where he thought he might not make it back. So let's hear what Ari had to say about this 
scary and amazing trip. How was the trip? <laughs> uh, it was right to the, it was, it was right to it. I want yeah, right, right, I want it right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was uh, it was it was a, a really uh, it was a fantastic trip actually. Um, aside from getting really really sick, everything was uh, everything couldn't have gone any better. So um, it was really good. Um, but like I said, I got really really sick for probably like three or four days um, while we were out there. So it was it was really tough. What happened? Did you eat something bad, or? Um, I don't know. Uh, it was uh, probably we we had my uh, travel partner uh, Tom and I were uh, heading out, and we were we were out to a site, and we were hiking out there, and you know doing our thing, and and I probably I got like really uh, started getting like real um, feverish feeling, and uh, I had everything from like body chills, body aches, high fever, um, nausea like debilitating stomach cramps uh no oh, appetite man. it was like oh my god water down and uh we we had like we were sharing like these knockoff like indonesian ibuprofen and that's pretty much all we had because he had um he, he took a slip and and hit his hip pretty good uh on one of the rocks when we were out there so he was hurting also from that so he was taking ibuprofen to kill the pain a little bit and i was taking ibuprofen so i could actually move and um <laughs> But uh, huh. yeah, it was it was really rough. It was probably the I was talking to um, when I got signal. I uh, messaged uh, Keith and Frederick uh, to let them know what was going on because they had been trying to reach me and find out what was going on. I told them I was like, man, I was like, I've been doing this for ten years, coming out here, and this is the first time I've actually really gotten scared about uh, being in the situation out there where I thought I might not actually wake up one night. So sick, it was just terrible. So I don't know what I got into, but. Uh, it was a, it was pretty rough. So it, it was a, it was a, it was a rough trip, but it um, was pretty fantastic. Uh, once I was um, out of there and kind of laying, laying somewhere besides the floor of the jungle. Yeah, it's uh, rest and relaxation is not really yeah. what I kind of call with the floor of the jungle. Yeah, so. it took me a while. I've been back for coming on almost three weeks now, so it's it's taken me all this time to kind of get right back into the in the routine and everything. This took this trip took a lot out of me and it like uh, messed me up a little mentally just with what I'm doing out there. It kind of just really set in as far as like, wow, this is really you know, scary shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it, uh, it hit home, it hit home pretty good this trip, but, uh, um, I'll be back in, uh, a few more months to finish what I'm doing. So, uh, the show must yeah. go on. Yes. <laughs> so that's what we were saying before we came on. Um, like yeah. what, what kind of, I mean, you, you gotta have, you gotta have that. I, I don't know what other word to use except passion to drive you to, be yeah. on death's door to like it's an I mean, addiction still went like out every day now, I, think. <laughs> I mean it's, it's full on like you traveled all that way right right now yeah, yeah. It's like you know and uh it's i mean i lost let's see i lost uh i i've been losing a lot of weight prior to my trip just because of just right. you know trying to get healthier and all that stuff and sure and i had lost a lot of weight probably like close to 20 pounds before i left and right. um, I uh, I dropped about eight and a half pounds in four days when I was out there just from being so sick because like I literally oh couldn't I didn't want anything to eat like it was very strange and uh, 
and I was like forcing water. So like I took a photo when I got out of the jungle, I sent it to my friend and she's like, Oh my God, you look like a skeleton. So I was like, <laughs> wow, I've never been called a skeleton before. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. Like, um, right on. Yeah. 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 It's good. So, but, um, yeah, it was a, it was an incredible trip. Some medical incidents are not always obvious at the time. Here from our friend Scott Iper, the renowned Australian herpetologist. Published some great field guides to Australian herps, which I recommend you check out, and we'll put a link in the bio to that. He's a well-known breeder of Australian venomous species, uh, married to uh, his lovely wife, Ty, who has to look after him. Um, they do a lot of educational stuff together, and we'll try and do some links for that as well in the bio. So Scott's going to talk about some dehydration incidents that he had whilst field herfing in Australia. So, uh, I suppose Eric, in regards to you know some of the things that can go wrong when you you go out into the field, there's all sorts of things that can happen and you know the the simple uh, preparation before you go away tends to make a huge difference in regards to um, whether you actually make some of these mistakes in the first place. Uh, one that is pressing for me I suppose was uh, happened about 40 kilometres south of Mount Isa in northwestern Queensland. Uh, that particular environment is really open. Um, it's basically rocky desert that's uh, got low ranges that start off as small sort of bumps in the ground and then they turn into these massive uh, piles of rocks. And they're usually about two or 300 metres apart or so. And so these particular ranges happened to run parallel to the road. So I was south of Mount Isa, so about you know, sort of 25 kilometres. Um, and I was walking off and I was checking these these uh, rocky ridges, looking for olive pythons, uh, Gleba palmer, uh, death adders, mulga snakes, geckos, all sorts of stuff. And so what I was using is I was using a technique called ice shining. Um, and so I parked the car on the side of the road uh, and you count how many ridges you go over before you, you know, so if you're going over two or three ridges away from the car, you say, oh, okay, I've gone over two or three ridges. So, you know, I've walked across one ridge, I've walked across the second ridge, I've walked across the third ridge, walked across the fourth ridge. So, you know, I'm about 1.2 kilometres away from the road you know the the temperature in this place middle of the day is about 40 42 degrees celsius so it's pretty hot um but at night it's it's a nice 30 odd degrees anyway so i was wandering around decided it was about time to head back towards the car so this is about two o'clock in the morning and i i start making my way back to the car and i cross the first ridge no dramas. Across the second ridge, no dramas. Across the third ridge, no dramas. 
across the fourth ridge and I'm expecting to see the the reflective markers of the road, um, you know, sort of two, three hundred metres away from me in the uh, in the distance. There's no reflective markers. Um, and that's that's when you start to get a little bit concerned because there should be a road in front of me here. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's happened. Have I turned around and started walking in the wrong direction, chasing a gecko? Because you, when you're eye shining you're concentrate you, you don't take your torch off the the lizard that is or the snake that's reflecting its uh, retinas back at you because as soon as you do that they tend to close the retina and you'd lose the eye shot so you can't find it again so you you might be walking for 50 or 100 meters in a beeline and not actually realize that you're walking north south east or west and so you tend to lose your bearings a little bit and so you're relying on these landmarks and when I'm walking back, I'm like, oh, as I was walking back, I thought I was fine because I thought I was walking straight back to where, to where the road was. Now I've got back to where the road should be and I'm really concerned because there's no road there. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how the hell can I get lost in the fucking desert? It's There's nothing for me to get lost by. It's not like I'm... Sure enough. So, anyway, I was quite nervous. I was carrying my camera gear with me. Didn't have a GPS with me because I didn't really worry about it. There's no mobile reception where I am. So there's no way I can bring up a map and go, oh, yeah, this is where the road is and I'll, I'll make my way back. So I always take a little bit of bearing as as to where I am. So, you know, I know I've driven south of Mount Isa. I know I've walked east off the road because the road runs north-south. So I know that if I'm walking west, then I can get, I'll, I'll eventually hit the road. I may not be anywhere near my car, but I'm going to hit the road. And then once I hit the road, then I can go, I can head north, find where north is. Eventually, I'll, I should hit, hit the road. Six hours... 5k an hour i'll at least get back to town by sort of morning and then i'll just have to get somebody to get a cab or something and get back to my car i'm sitting there thinking oh oh god this is not good <laughs> anyway <laughs> north or south along and then suddenly your landmarks aren't your landmarks anymore and that's how i got lost so long story short i was out for an extra three and a half hours on to where i was um what I tend to do now is I tend to drop a pin um, with my GPS as to where the car is, and I always carry a GPS now with me in the field, and that way I can always get back to where I'm at. <laughs> so I was concentrating on, on animals. I wasn't concentrating to your background consideration. Oh, yeah, okay, I've gone over this ridge. And it'd be the same thing when you guys are hunting on timber, rattle, timber rattlers or something like that. You know, sure. You're going to go over and you're going to hit a rock pile and go... And then you're going to walk to the next rock pile. Then you're going to walk to the next rock pile. Well, they might be a quarter mile in between each other. And you might have gone over two ridges or something like that to get to that next rock pile. Well, you may have actually gone over three ridges and not realised it because you've been concentrating on the rattlesnakes that are in front of you. Um, and that's how it, it all went tits up, I suppose. You can do the same thing pretty easily in the rainforest as well. I've done the same thing in the rainforest where you, you, know, you, you go off a track and... You know, you, you're chasing, and you, know, you might be chasing a monitor or something like that through the scrub, and you you, you might be running for, for 60 or 70 metres, and then suddenly 
you'd turn around and go, shit, where's the truck gone? Tend to herp in places that are a little bit remote too. So, you, I mean, you've, you've seen the the, um, the rainforest in, in Queensland. Um, yeah. The stuff in North Queensland isn't too different to the stuff in South Queensland. So, uh, from a, a density point of view. Um, and so, you'll turn around and next thing you know, like, oh, where the hell did I go there? That's my point, is that you always make sure that you have a have a reference point that you can come back to. Now, whether, generally speaking, phones are, are shocking because phones don't always pick up service. They might have GPS, but they may not pick up on service. So um, that's one thing to keep in mind, and particularly when you've got a canopy over the top. The canopy obviously blocks the GPS signal as well, so it, right. it makes it less effective. Um, so... You know, my suggestion is, is always to, to make sure you study the track. Um, be able to have a little bit of bushcraft about you and be able to find north, south, east and west without any electronic means. You should be able to know how to use a, make a compass out of a needle and a, a piece of water and a, a, a leaf. As long as you, if you've got a needle in your, in your backpack, you know, you can use it for digging out splinters and all sorts of stuff. But at the same time, at least that means that you can form a, a makeshift compass. If everything worked to shit, you lost your phone or your phone didn't have back. You lost everything else that you needed. At least you could find out your direction and then at least you could try and work out where you were and having an understanding of, of where you've come off the road or off that track makes a huge difference as well. So that's half the battle, I suppose. Um and, and likewise, too, telling someone where you're going as well. You know, you, you, you should have a place that, you know, might be, you might be talking to your wife, you might be talking to your partner, it doesn't matter. You, you explain, say, hey, I'm going to this location. Um, you know, I should be home around X. And, or you should hear from me around X. And that way, then, if they don't hear from you, um, not only are you going to be in the shit and also raise, raise the alarm if something's gone, gone badly as well. Uh, up at, up near Mount Isa. And so, uh, Mount Isa is a fantastic herping mecca. Um, I, I've been up there, herping up there now for the last oh, dozen or so years. Um, tend to go up there for about once a week, um, for about a week once a year. Um, and while I'm up there, I, I always do a bit of herping while I'm there, but I'm usually up there doing snake training and snake management courses. Uh, teaching people how to work with venomous snakes. Anyway, so as you do, you tack on a bit of additional herping, and, and so I was up there. Uh, this is what 2015, uh, so uh, almost six years ago now. Um, and I didn't think too much of it, but I was drinking soft drinks, and coffee, and all that sort of stuff, as opposed to actually drinking water. Um, and I didn't really think too much of it. Extremely warm. Um, it was about a uh, – most days were about 40 to 45 degrees. Um, and <clears throat> I was drinking the whole time, but as I said, I wasn't drinking water. I was drinking rubbish anyway. So I was out chasing uh, a small skink called Cryptoblepharus zoticus, uh, which is this – a little fast-moving skink that run around on the rock faces in that heat. Um, we were chasing freshwater crocodiles. We were looking at Tenophorus uh, slateri, which is a, uh, a beautiful ringtail dragon. 
Um, and basically having a really enjoyable wander and then went for a swim after that at a place called Indari Falls. Um, didn't really think too much of it. I, I felt a bit lightheaded because I had been a bit dehydrated. Got back to the car, drank a heap more Pepsi and all the rest of it. Um, and I thought I was okay. Uh, a couple of days later, I realised I hadn't taken a fucking shit. And I was like, well, you know, you don't crap every day. It's not the end of the world. I'm, I'll just... I didn't feel blocked up or anything like that. I just didn't feel quite right. So another two days go past and uh, I've jumped on a plane and I've I've headed back to to Brisbane where I live. And the following morning I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning and I had the most horrendous pain in my lower abdomen. And I had previously had a thing called uh, kidney stones and um, anyone that's had kidney stones out there knows what the, that sort of pain's like. It just doesn't quit. It's it's horrible. Um, and generally speaking, if they're small, you go in, you get an ultrasound at the hospital and the ultrasound can actually break up the stones and you pass them and that's the end of it. And so I go into the hospital thinking that, you know, it's probably going to be kidney stones or something like that. And not really too worried about it. And anyway, so they, they give me some painkillers and then they do an ultrasound and they can see a mass, but they can't really see what it is. And then they, um, they do an MRI and they can't figure out what's going on. And then they, they decide, oh, look, in the end, they go, look, we just, we just can't figure it out. We, we need to open you up and have a look. And I'll never forget the doctor saying to me, he goes, so, do you mind if we if we see something wrong? Do we mind if you when we're already in there if we just go in and fix it up? So I'm expecting keyhole surgery, right? So you know, heart that's you know be a bit, a bit sore because I've been moving shit around. But I was expecting a cut that was you know, an inch inch and a half long, maybe for for the camera, and an inch and a half for whatever tool I was going to use. You know, well, I look down at my gut and there's a thirty centimetre long fucking cut from above my belly button to just above my groin. It's been stapled together and it looks like they've cut it open with a fucking bread knife. It's all jagged and all the rest of it. And I'm like, shit, you know, it couldn't even be straight. The pain I was in, oh, it was, it was not good. So what, what ended up happening is I had what they call an intersusception of the lower bowel. Uh, so an intersusception is where, think of a telescope and the telescope you know how a telescope, one of those collapsible telescopes, how they, they click together. And they typically say, so what happened is, is the bowel folded over itself, right? And so as it folded over itself, you get a, a, uh, a basically a, a knot in the tissue where the oxygen can't get through to the, the lining of the bowel between those two folds of tissue. I was like, okay, well... So it rots, basically. It, die, it dies. That section of the bowel dies. So I had this dead tube of bowel inside me. Um, so obviously they need to cut that out and then they have to rejoin it. And so they, you know, they move your intestines out of the way and all the rest of it and they cut the section and they put it back together. Uh, and so long in the story, long story short, is that, you know, I could never be as full of shit as I once was. That, that was all well and good. That was actually, believe it or not, that was the whole pleasant side of it. Um, I had no idea how bad the post-op 
and the post pain that I would be dealing with. So the, the doctor explained that there's about five layers of muscle um, that, that go across and they, they go across laterally and then they go across north-south and, and all the rest of it and they sort of intermesh and that's what keeps your intestines where your intestines are and all the rest of it. But it also, it's, it's your core, it, it, it helps you breathe, it helps you, um, you know, everything that you do. You imagine I've just been cut all the way up. That's all been sort of ruined, um, for lack of a better term, and then they sort of stitch it back together so you heal. You sort of heal. You don't always heal properly. I've got a, I've got at least two hernias out of it now uh, that at some point in time I've got to go back and get them fixed, which absolutely sucks. Um and the, the post-op pain was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and I found out, too, that I'm not the most pleasant person on, on morphine as well. So, so my wife, uh, she, was, she was very uh, very understanding and she was obviously very worried. And, and so I was out of it on morphine. But, uh, so she, she came in. She goes, look, you know, pretty boring in the hospital. Pretty boring in the hospital. I'll bring some books in. So she's... Logged it, loved in a, a cogger and a couple of other things. Now, yeah, I don't know if, if I'm pretty sure you'd have a cogger, but to give your readers, the listeners, a um, an understanding, the the cogger book is about 900 pages, um, A4 size book. It's a huge lump of a book, and it is not bloody light. And she's lugged that in and a few others, and you know what it's like in a hospital. You you get put in one place, and you get taken to another, and you get taken to another after that. She's been, she's nervous, a little bit upset, and now she's wandering around trying to find me, all while lugging this fucking huge book around. She gets into the hospital room, and she goes, she goes, oh, here, I've got this book. Apparently, I told her, I'm in a kind of a mood, you can just fuck off. And I'm like, I, I do not, I sort of vaguely remember... I don't remember saying it. I sort of vaguely remember a bit of it. And it's that, you know, people say, have you ever got a regret? That is my one regret, is speaking to my wife the way I did when all she was trying to do was be be nice to me. I suppose this is the point that, you know, bringing back a full circle to it. And and now everybody that goes herping with me, if they talk to my wife, make sure he drinks water. They all fucking you drink water. You bring water with you, you know, because I'm even more susceptible now, you know. So, but the the point is, is that even something as innocuous as as not not drinking enough water can really be a huge impact to you moving forward. You know, five years down the track, you could still be suffering from it, um, and you know, now it, it is what it is. It's yeah, so in the rainforest over here, we've got these, we've got a multitude of plants over here, and and one of the one of the most interesting plants out there, and it's, it's always one that I love showing to, to people overseas, is um is a pl- a plant called the gimpy gimpy. Now the gimpy gimpy is also known as the giant stinging tree, um, and now most people think of a stinging a stinging plant like a, a nettle or something like that, which is uh, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it's basically like a beginner, a beginner stinging plant. It, it really doesn't do anything to you. It, it makes you feel tingle a little bit and you go, oh, yeah, you touch it and that's about it. The giant stinging tree 
you know, people have people who have fallen into it and stuff like that. They have uh, gotten to the point where they've, you know, they're seriously considered wanting to commit suicide from touching this fucking plant. It's a full-on thing. Um, wow. The leaves are about the size of a basketball uh, in in diameter. Um, and they basically look like a, they've got like this fur on them. Well, those fur, the fur, those stinging hairs are actually um, connected, connected to a uh, a venom venom gland, and they actually have a nematocyst off them. So those hairs uh, go into your skin. They the, the venom travels up through the hair and then goes into the into the wound, and then the the hair snaps off into your skin. Um, and basically, you know, it's, it's not a, a a poisonous plant. It's actually a venomous plant. Pain that you suffer, absolutely incredible. Even sting you too. Um, I was looking for a fossorial species of frog in the rainforest, and, and I could hear this thing calling from amongst these leaves. And so, you know, we, you pull the leaves apart just with your fingers, um, and, you know, next thing you know, well, my fingers are absolutely on fire and I look up and I see what I'm sitting underneath and I'm like, oh, you fucking moron. Um, so I was pretty upset with myself. All 10 of my fingers were on absolute fire uh, from a dead leaf on the ground where the, the singing cells are still fired off and, um, and gone into my fingers. And so the one thing I carry now when I'm in the, the rainforest, I actually, actually carry a roll of duct tape uh, because you can use the duct tape, stick the duct tape on your fingers and then pull it off and that pulls the hairs out at the same time. You can use wax strips and stuff like that as well. Um, I've also brushed against live ones. The live ones hurt a hell of a lot more. Now, to give you an idea, the pain, six to 12 hours is pretty standard for, for pain with these things, but then on top of that, you will have pain when you wash that area for up to six months. If you search it on the web, you'll you'll see people, you know, there's, there's stories about people have fallen into, you know, big tracks of this stuff and, you know, they've, they've wanted to commit suicide and things like that. You know, another time that, you know, I got done on the ankles pretty bad up in up near Coranda by this thing and, you know, wandering around in a pair of shorts. And it was, I was ice shining a leaf tail gecko. And again, ice shining, you know, your beeline to the animal, you don't really think too much of it. <laughs> and as I've wandered along, I've wandered off this path and I was up at, uh, I was at Curtain Fig, at the Curtain Fig trick. So Curtain Fig is, is between Coranda and um, Lake Marine. It's this little, little spot. Beautiful spot. And this is huge curtain, curtain pig with these huge banyans coming off the, you know, the big, um, big vines coming down. And, you know, it's a really good spot for uh, leaftail geckos and stuff like that. But you also get uh, chameleon geckos, Carpidactylus labus there as well. And so I was sort of hoping to see a chameleon gecko. Anyway, so I got eye shine about 30 metres or so off the track um, for a, it was a herp of some description. It was pretty low down. And I was, I was hoping it could have been a chameleon gecko rather than just a leafy. And so I, I walked over to it, just eyes straight on it, boom, 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 boom. Next thing you know, I've, I've got to it. Oh, yeah, leaf tail gecko. Turned around, started to walk back out. As I start walk back out, I've got, oh, that hurt. And then as I've turned and looked, I brushed my other ankle against it as well. So I, I hit the left ankle first. As I spun around to look around to my left to see what it was, 
I look around and I've hit my right ankle or spun, and then I've, I've got like oh, they're probably about a foot and a half high. All these young stinging trees that have just grown up in this patch of there must have been a tree falling down, and so the the sunlight has now allowed all these plants to grow up through the through the forest floor. And it just happens to be a whole shitload of baby stinging trees. Um, so I ended up getting stung three more times on the ankles as I got back to the car. So I so, uh, got back to the track. So somehow I walk in without getting done and I end up getting done five times on the way back out all on the, the lower shins and ankles by these fucking plants. Yeah, well, the thing is, is I mean, that's you know, venomous venomous critters out in the bush. I mean, we, we're out there playing with snakes and that's the thing that we think of. But, you know, I've been bitten by spiders out in the field, um, turning over bits and pieces, not looking very quick fingers. Um I got nailed by a centipede in my swag. So a swag is like a bedroll. So you, instead of staying in hotels, I tend to stay in a swag when I'm, when I'm away. And so you, you roll the swag down and, and that goes down on the ground. What we'll often do is we'll go, right, this is where we're going to we're gonna go herp here for the night. And so we'll park the car, roll the swags out, set the swags up, and then we'll go off and fucking wander off into the scrub. You know, we'll go herping for for two or three hours or something like that, and then come back to the come back to the swags and crawl into bed and go to sleep. So this was where was that? Uh, that was our near Blackdown Tableland. This this spot that I got done. Anyway, so I was out at Blackdown Tableland. We were looking around for a, a small frog called Sidophony Bibrinoi. Um, calls in little gutters and stuff like that, and there's also uh, leaf tail geckos, there are different species, Saltuaria salabrosis is there and um, a few other bits and pieces. So we'd, we'd wandered around, we'd had a pretty successful night, I'd found the leaf tail geckos and we'd found the, the, the little frog we're after and photographed them and anyway, so I crawl into the swag and about four o'clock in the morning I've got this huge pain in my hip and sting and I've woken up, what the fuck was that? get up and I pull the fucking thing out and it's an eight inch long centipede. It's one of the Scolopendra uh, centipedes and it nailed me on the fucking hip. And that thing, they're crazy. Like I've seen some big Scolopendra over here as well. Um, and, you know, this one instance I was driving, driving through the roads in Mitchell grasslands between Winton and Julia Creek and you could see these things running across the road and they they were moving zigzag in a weird zigzag pattern across the road and they had this, like this ball on the end of them. I couldn't work out what it was. When we pulled the car up and had a look, it was actually these centipedes that were capturing neonate um, metamorphling cyclorana frogs and they were capturing the frogs and lifting them off the ground and then they were eating them as they were running around on the roads. So, that, you know, these things are an insane sort of an animal. They've got these... Uh, modified claws on their front feet. The first pair of legs is a modified venom claw, which has a pincer action, and that's what what stings you. So I got nailed by one of them. Um, I've been stung by plenty of wasps um, over the years. You know, you walk around a uh, thing, and the next thing you know, you get stung by a wasp. Um, I got done by a bull ant just recently. A bull ant is a, an ant that's about an inch long that has a uh, it's meant to have a, a really significant uh, envenomation. I'd never been stung by one before, and I didn't really think too much of it. Um, 
people have died from them in in Tasmania due to allergies and stuff like that. They're not a they're not like a, a normal little ant. There is apparently they're a fair bit worse than a fire ant. Anyway, didn't think much of it. My wife wanted some um, soil for her. Uh, naturalistic terrarium that she's setting up and I was like oh okay well we'll go get some some rainforest soil for you and next thing you know I'm getting the rainforest soil for her and then she goes oh I want a bit from over there I come over to help her get that bit next thing you know I look down and I'm my I got done three times on one ankle and then on the finger as I was trying to brush that thing off all my wife could do was sit there and laugh at me So, Nipper, have you been in any situations when you were herping that the weather made you nervous? Yeah, um, possibly one of the worst. I was uh, out herping in Corsica, uh, which is an island um, in the Mediterranean, very, very mountainous. It's where the Foreign Legion train is it's quite barren. And uh, I was up in the mountains there looking for salamanders. And we got caught out in a summer thunderstorm completely. And we're at quite an altitude and just the atmosphere changed. All the hairs on your arms seemed to be going up. You could almost feel, it's like when you stood under power lines, that's what it felt like. You could almost hear a buzzing in the air. And then uh, we had the biggest lightning storm and the lightning was striking dangerously close to us. And it was a horrible feeling because there was absolutely nowhere to get away from the lightning. Um, and you know I'm around six foot tall so if I was standing up I just felt like I was the tallest thing around <laughs> and didn't want to get struck by lightning so yeah that, that was quite grim but as you say you need to get weather reports and you need to take the weather seriously um, just falling into some water and getting wet and then coming out and it being windy is enough to cause you serious problems um, heat stroke you know, we, you know, it's lovely to be out in the sun, but we've, you know, we've heard from Scott, if you're not drinking enough fluids while you're out um, and the exertion of walking at altitude and flipping rocks and flipping logs and so on and so forth, you're going to get dehydrated really, really quickly. Um, and then you've got sunstroke and, you know, the effects of sunburn and, and that sort of thing. So weather can play a, a huge part in safety when you're field helping. You had uh, another situation. You were herping in Switzerland. Maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, that was um, that was terrain-based rather than weather. But terrain again, um, as you know, when you're particularly when you're looking for rattlesnakes, you're on scree slopes, and you know you're climbing up the sides of mountains. Rocks can come away. The surface of the rocks are quite slippery. Um, you've got uneven terrain. You've got Un, you know, unprecedented drops you might have seen, you know, you might not be expecting it, but you might just step off an edge that you weren't expecting and so on and so forth. Um, 
I was herping in a place called Cresciano in Switzerland, which is uh, lovely mountains um, with like f uh, beech tree forests all up them. So it's very, very picturesque at an altitude of about 7,000 feet. Lovely little streams uh, running off the side of the mountains, forest all down past into the streams. Uh, and I was walking along and I'd walked away from, from the other chaps that I was herping with going off my own just to see uh, what we could find. And the target species for this, this particular trip was a type of salamander, the, the European fire salamander, which is incidentally one of the species that got me into field herping in the first place. And um, I took a rest leaning against what I thought was a solid tree and it turned out to be rotten. And the actual tree trunk broke off in half and I ended up pitching forward and I fell over the edge of a small cliff. Um, the drop itself was probably about 15 feet, something like that. Unfortunately, as I fell through the air, I span and I landed on my back and I had a rucksack on. Uh, and the ground itself was leaf litter and then a slope. So I ended up landing on my back and then rolling about another 50 meters down the hillside. All the kit came out of my rucksack, um, all my clothes, camera equipment was spread over a massive area. Uh, fortunately, I was just winded and had loads of cuts and bruises and just a little bit disorientated. And I just sort of kind of laid on the ground for about 20 minutes, getting my breath back. Um, if I'd have fallen about another 10 feet further on, the drop was about 30 or 40 feet. It would have made a massive difference. So just a simple, you know, a two second rest can turn into absolute disaster. Um, and as I was away from the group, um, it was, you know, it was over an hour before I gathered my kit up and managed to sort of hobble and start shouting and, and found the rest of the group. So things to consider is um, solar herping is possibly not such a great idea. Know the terrain and um, yeah, just be careful where you're walking. Can we talk about maybe some other things that we should take into consideration when going field herping. What comes to mind for you, Nipper? I've seen it so many times when people um, get a target species, particularly a venomous one, and they're taking photos of it and they're crouched down on all fours taking a picture and they're looking through a viewfinder. And that's the, that suddenly becomes their world because they're so excited to be getting their fabulous pictures of this venomous snake that they've that, you know, spent weeks looking for. And they're getting closer and closer and closer to the snake because they're looking through a viewfinder, not into the real world. And then you suddenly have to, you know, you're, you're shouting warnings that their hands are probably in striking distance now because they're trying to get that fabulous macro shot. Um, or the other thing that I've seen quite a lot is people kneeling down to take photographs and not checking the area where they're kneeling down. And you've seen it, you know, um, regularly. If you're photographing rattlesnakes, particularly in some areas where there's one rattlesnake there's an awful lot of rattlesnakes you know if you're at a den site or something like that you really do need to be checking where you're sitting where you're kneeling down to take your photographs and that sort of thing another thing to consider and again you know you've got experience of this in some habitats you're not the top of the food chain which is weird for us as humans but if you're poking about looking for carpet pythons in australia near a water course or something like that, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to consider what else is going to be dangerous to me. I mean, I've been, when I was herping in Cuba, I'm walking like waist deep 
through jungle rivers looking for boas and things like that. And then I suddenly realized, hold on a minute, they have crocodiles here. You need to get out of the water. And, you know, same with Australia. You know, you're, you're, you're hot, you're tired, you're sweaty. You come across a pool, that looks fantastic. Let's go for a swim. Hold on a minute. I'm not top of the food chain here. Another thing to take into consideration when herping in other countries is the fact that a lot of other countries drive on the opposite side of the car and on the opposite side of the road. When we were in Australia, it took some getting used to. Uh, luckily, a lot of the places that we were headed to were somewhat remote. You really didn't have a lot of traffic to deal with, which allowed you to get used to it without the pressure of, of other drivers around you. Oddly enough, the hardest thing to remember is the windshield uh, wipers and the turn signals are on the opposite sides. When I finally got used to it in Australia and had came back to the U.S., I was doing the opposite now in the U.S. So we had very clean windows. You've got to think as well, you know, you're probably going to be tired if you've been out looking for snakes at night as well as herping during the day. You're probably not going to have eaten particularly well. You know, you know, three or four nights of no sleep and crap food, your driving's going to be poor anyway. And as you say, if you're on the wrong side of a car, on the wrong side of the road, fortunately for me, Australia's the right side of the road and the right side of the car. Um, but North America, completely strange. Even the way you go to stoplights and you can turn right at stoplights and things like that, odd. Um, but yeah, it's something else to consider, potential accidents. Um, other things to consider as well, I mean, there's the obvious things, you know, you're not a local, you don't know what areas are safe, particularly if you're looking at helping places like Mexico with all the narco uh, traffic that goes on through there. Yeah, they've got the, probably some of the best species in the world, rattlesnake-wise and uh, kingsnake-wise, but those areas are really, really dangerous for herpers to travel in. I've had incidents where people have threatened to shoot me because they think you're trespassing when you're up in the mountains around countries in Europe. Um, friends of mine have been arrested for spying and held uh, in jail because they were taking photographs near a, a military base. They was only photographing frogs, but you know they had big cameras near a military base, so they was they was um, they was arrested for that. Um, and just people being robbed. You know, you're walking around with thousands of pounds of camera equipment in uh, areas or countries where um, people might not have a massive income. It's, you know, it's another thing to consider. Nibber, let's talk to Jacob Bratz. He's from JLB Morelia and the Herpticulture Podcast, and we're going to talk to him about his Western Diamondback rattlesnake bite. All right. Yeah, so my name is Jacob Rotz. I'm with JOB Morelia. And while I was in college, I believe it was 2016, um, I took a spring break trip out to Texas. And along the way, I got bit by a Western Diamondback rattlesnake. Um, it was a very interesting experience to say the least. Um, so I was out, uh, I was out, you know, field herping and, um, you know, obviously in South Texas during the, during the springtime, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of different reptiles to be seen. Um, so obviously I was out in the field every day. 
Um, and we had found, we had found several diamondbacks throughout the day and, you know, we found some big ones. We found, you know, some really, really little ones, like fresh babies. We found a couple of hope, like a pile of them. There was a couple laying around. Um, and then, um, then we found one that was kind of in between. It wasn't, you know, wasn't an adult, wasn't a baby by any means. Um, and, uh, well, long story short, uh, it was in the grass. I was trying to get it out of the grass and I made a wrong move. I went for its tail to try and pull him out because I thought I had a good hold on him. And uh, he, he turned around and bit me right on the thumb. The Western Diamondback Rattlesnake, Crotalus atrox, is one of the most common species of rattlesnake found in the Western United States. Due to their adaptability and highly defensive nature, they have gained notoriety as being one of the most fierce snakes in North America. Crotalus atrox are typically tan or brown in base color, with dark, diamond-shaped saddles of brown connecting down the snake's back to its tail, giving them their diamondback name. These snakes are usually identified rapidly in the field by their stark bands of black and white on the entirety of their tail, reminiscent of a raccoon. Their tail ends abruptly in the infamous rattle, which is used to ward off predation and to allow larger animals to know of the snake's existence in the dense sagebrush of the West. Like most pit vipers, Crotalus atrox are live-bearing and typically give birth to 15 to 20 young. They are considered to be a medium-sized pit viper, averaging 4 to 5 feet in length. The venom of Crotalus atrox is extremely volatile, primarily a hemotoxic venom, destroying blood vessels, capillaries, and blood cells of the heart. Their venom is also cytotoxic and myotoxic, destroying cell structures of the body and the deterioration of muscle tissue. Symptoms of an envenomation can be extreme pain, predominantly at the bite site, swelling of the affected appendage, overwhelmingly high blood pressure, heart failure, and death. The effects of a full envenomation from Crotalus atrox can be lethal, and should a bite occur, medical help and the use of antivenin must be deployed immediately. Um, when I got bit, it was more so, it was a very, um, I guess a surreal moment almost, you know, one of those things you didn't, didn't believe it just happened, but you know, it just did because you watched it, even though, you know, you almost didn't because it happens in the blink of an eye. I, you know, he, he came out, hit me so fast and was back in the grass. Like it was nothing, you know, literally as fast as you can blink, he was there and gone. Um, so I just kind of like stood up and, you know, I looked, I looked down at my thumb and I had two perfect little, little pinpricks right there. And there was venom dripping out of one of them. You know, obviously my first thought was, man, I hope it was dry. Um, but, uh, I looked at, I looked at those two, two little pricks and there was, there was venom dripping down. So I automatically knew it was, you know, it was a, it was not a dry bite at all. Um, so I just kind of sat there and I was with somebody, you know, again, I was kind of just collecting myself and, um, a person looked at me and they're like, what, what, what happened? They're like, did it bite you? Are you good? And I, I just kind of looked at him and I was like, it bit me. She's like, don't joke. I'm like, no, it, it bit me. And so she proceeded to call 911. Um, I was at a nature, uh, it was like a nature trail type park thing, you know, one of those with the whole signs that say, stay off, stay on the paths, you know, and I didn't, um, that's why. <laughs> um, uh, so that she called 911, and um, ambulance showed up, and they immediately took everything off of off my hand, 
um, and anything that could cut off any type of circulation and they immediately loaded me up into the ambulance and took me to the hospital. Um, I didn't want an ambulance ride. I would have much rather have just been driven there um, because that just added to the bill at the end of the day. But, you know, um, they had to, they, you know, first I was without time, wanted to be safe and sorry, you know, which you know, is always a good thing. Um, and getting to the hospital immediately is, you know, the most important thing with any uh, venomous snake bite, of course. Um, you know, so the first thing you need to do is just go straight to the hospital. Um, so ambulance came, they loaded me up, um, you know, they kept asking me over and over and over, you know, if I knew what kind of snake it was, blah, 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 to the point where I actually got kind of pissed off at the lady and was like, I've been working with snakes for a really long time. Like it was a Western diamondback rattlesnake. Please stop asking. And I was just like, okay, I just have to ask, you know, I may have been kind of a dick to her, but it, it is what it is. Um, I just been bit by a rattlesnake. What do you want from me? Uh, <laughs> So, um, ambulance ride there, you know, uh, by the time we got to the hospital from the bite to being at the hospital was maybe 30 minutes. You know, I got there, I got there really quick. And I think that's kind of what saved my thumb, to be honest. Um, by the time I got there, like it, it hadn't gotten too, too bad, but there, I had, I could definitely feel the throbbing, you know, the throbbing is almost immediate after, after the bite, you know, you give it, give it a couple minutes. You can already, you, you just kind of feel it just that, you know, and, um, so by the time we got there, you know, I had slight swelling in my thumb and, uh, definitely, you know, the throbbing was getting worse and worse. Um, so they put me on fluids, all that good stuff. And, you know, this is what they told me in the hospital. You know, I don't know how hospitals work with anti-venom and crofab and whatnot, but, um, apparently when you're in a hospital, they have to make it. And that, so as soon as I got there, they had to start making it and the process to make it or get it ready to be given to a person takes roughly two and a half hours. And if you know anything about uh, venomous snake bites, especially with vipers or, you know, North American pit vipers, um, that's normally about your peak is that around the two and a half hour mark is when you're at, you know, your worst, your worst pain, everything's just, you know, terrible at that point. Um, so I basically sat in a hospital bed, you know, hooked up the fluids and, um, uh, they had automatically put me on painkillers and stuff. Um, so uh, by the time the two and a half hour mark came, like the swelling, like they had, it started obviously in my thumb, you know, that was the bite zone. Uh, my thumb swelled up incredibly, worked its way through my entire hand, um, all the way up my forearm, through my bicep to the point where it was like, it was in my shoulder. The swelling had gotten, gotten so bad. Um, and then by that time, you know, they're almost ready to give me the venom, the anti-venom. They had already had me on all kinds of morphine and, you know, all, all the painkillers. And they were, they, after all that, they, they asked me, they're like, okay, where's your pain at? And I'm like, I'm not the type of guy to say 10, like ever, you know, for anything. Um, but you know, I just got bit by a rattlesnake and this hurts really, I'm in a stupid amount of pain. Didn't feel, I didn't feel any let up this entire time. So they're just like, okay, we're going to give you something X, Y, Z. I don't even remember what it was called. 
So I just kind of looked at him funny and was like, I don't know what that is. And uh, they're like, basically, it's Morphine's older brother. And they were like, it might make you kind of sick. And I was like, okay, cool. We'll, we'll, we'll ride with it, you know, whatever. Anything I'll make this go away because like the best way I can describe the pain is it, to, at least to me, it felt like my entire arm had been set on fire. Like it was burning from the inside out. And then someone was taking a hammer and smashing my thumb over and over and over. The throbbing was so intense. It was by far the most painful experience of my entire life. You know, it hurt so bad. You know, the people that were in the hospital with me were like, it's okay to cry. I'm like, I know it's okay to cry, but my God, I'm in so much pain. I can't. Like, it's not how this works right now. Um, so the pain was absolutely horrible. So they gave me what they called morphine's older brother. Um, and I, not even 10 minutes went by. And at that point, like, I don't know if my body went into shock. I don't know if it was trying to shut down. I don't know what the deal was, but I just started shaking uncontrollably. My, I was sweating profusely, you know, but I was also freezing and I started shaking. My entire hospital bed was rocking back and forth. I had turned extremely pale um, and I started puking. I could not stop puking. You know, I was you know, probably five, five, six, ten times, you know, and it, it was absolutely terrible. Um, so Crofab, I guess, finally started to kick in and the pain never, it didn't stop for several hours, but it, it, it didn't get worse. It stopped getting as bad, you know, after, you know, a solid three to four hours of excruciating pain. Um, and by the time it was just done progressing and it let up slightly, you know, I was just exhausted. They put me in ICU for, uh, for the entire night. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I slept for, for the, for that night. And then part of the next day and the next day, the pain is still just absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I had no, absolutely no movement in my entire arm. Um, so I was in a hospital room for a total of uh, four days, I think it was. It was three or four. I'm pretty sure it was four days. I got out, I got out on the fourth day. But I'm pretty sure it was the day after I got out of the hospital. I had to fly back uh, to South Carolina. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone through a plane with some type of injury, but it's like it's a whole other process and it's it's absolute hell. Um, they had to swab my hand and literally the touch of anything on in my entire arm hurts so bad. And this dude like just crushed into my hand with the swab and I almost punched him in the face. It hurts so bad. Um, and that had that it stayed like that for a solid. It was that sensitive for at least two weeks. And it took an entire month to actually be able to just like tap my arm. I would say almost two months by the time I was completely over it, I guess. And even at the two month mark, my arm was still almost just one big bruise for almost a month um, after the bite. Um, and then by then I really had to start working my arm because of the, all the scar tissue. I was almost at the point where I needed skin grafts, but you know, that's, you know, like I said, because I got to the hospital so fast, you know, I was able, basically able to get Crofab as soon as possible. So that's why I say, I think that saved my thumb. 
um, because they were telling me, you know, if it gets any worse, we're going to have to cut, cut it open and do skin grafts. Um, so I was very thankful to not have to do that. But even then, you know, all the scar tissue in my arm from the swelling, you know, was just insane. You know, I had to literally break it all apart. Um, I should have gone to physical therapy. I didn't. And I kind of pay for that now because my thumb doesn't bend as much as it used to. Um, it's funny. I just kind of like hit a wall with it. But nothing, no long-term effects, luckily. Um, <laughs> rough, it was a rough time. I definitely don't don't recommend it. <laughs> um, but it's certainly it's certainly an experience and um, it, it really it really made me look at you know myself as you know the my, as a field herper and a keeper you know you get a whole new respect for these animals and what they can do because I mean I thought I was gonna die I felt like I was gonna die you know I knew the likelihood of that happening was not high but you know in that moment like I felt like I was dying you know and it's just um, yeah. It's one of those things. So how many vials of anti-venom would it take for a bite like this? Uh, I got, I was actually talking to my mom about it tonight and I thought it was 12. Um, but she thinks it was more. I can't exactly remember. Um, but for some reason, 12 is sticking out of my head. It was 12 to 15. It's a, it's a hell of a process and it's extremely expensive. I'm not going to lie. I'm not gonna lie. That was one of the first thoughts is when I when it hit me, I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be expensive." Yeah, no, it's uh, but like I said, man, you know, it's and I take I take full responsibility for the bite. Obviously, I was being reckless, and you know, at the time, I had really gotten into working with venomous snakes in the field. I had been, you know, catching you know canebrake rattlesnakes, copperheads, cottonmouths, all kinds of stuff back home. And um, I just, I got too confident. I got too cocky. And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. It's no problem. You know, I've dealt with bigger cane breaks than this. And, you know, I paid for it, you know, and I'm, I'll be the first to tell you that, you know, and everybody, one thing they kept asking me at the trail or, you know, the, the hospital or the, the ambulance people, they were, they were like, you know, where was the snake at? I'm like, don't worry about where the snake was at. Like, it doesn't matter. It was all, it was out there. You know, it, I did this. This is my fault. Like, don't, don't you dare go try and make that snake pay for this. Cause that's what a lot of people's first reaction is. Go kill the thing that hurt somebody. You know, they do it with gators all the time around here. And that was the last thing I wanted, you know, because at the end of the day, if you get bit by a venomous snake, 99% of the time it is your, it is because you were careless. And that is, you know, what happened with me. I was careless. I wasn't smart. I made a bad move and I paid for it. With all this talk about what could go wrong, it's important to prepare before you go on any kind of herping. So let's talk about what we can do to make herping safer. Um, I would say, from my experience, uh, get to know your group. Know who you're going away with. Um, you need to know 
in your group if anybody has any medical problems, which sounds a bit invasive and personal, but if you're in the arsehole of nowhere and then suddenly someone starts having heart problems, you really need to know where they're keeping their heart tablets or what you need to do if they've got an angina spray or something like that. So know your group's medical history. Um, know, people, know people's allergies. You know, if you're looking for venomous species and somebody has, you know, regular anaphylactic reactions to bee stings, you need to know what to do if they're around venomous species, whether they've got an EpiPen, so on and so forth. Um, personally, I, I'd always want to know people's blood groups, medical histories, so that if the worst does happen, you can tell the emergency services exactly what you need. they need to know straight away without any flapping. Because as you know, when the shit hit the fans, um, flapping is going to get you killed. You need to be as 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 calm and have as much information and pre-prepared stuff as possible. Um, if you're going out looking for venomous species, I think it, it's always good to know, particularly if you're in the United States or um, some of the African countries, know the types of antivenoms that are produced for certain species. Um, now obviously, antivenoms have lots of different trade names, but if you know some of them, at least you can give some of the doctors an idea of the sort of antivenom that they need to be looking at. In certain countries, I wouldn't assume that the doctors have much training in snake bite, so any help you can give them might save those few minutes, which might make a massive difference to you. Um, the other thing I would say uh, is learn some first aid. You could be, as you know, as we've discussed, and if we both experienced, you could be hours, if not days, away from a hospital. So you need to learn some first aid. And I'm not talking about the wanky office first aid, how to put a plaster on. I'm talking about proper long-term keeping a casualty alive, monitoring a casualty for hours, if not days, type first aid. There's plenty of courses out there. I've, I've done a, a number of courses through work or outside of work. If you're out in the mountains and somebody has an accident, you've got to keep them stable and alive for a long time. It's not like when you're in an office and you can get them to an ER in 10 minutes. Um, there's some fantastic stuff online, particularly the African Snakebite Institute. If, you, if you're talking about venomous snake bites, they do a great app for your phone, which tells you snake bite first aid, how to use compression bandages and that sort of thing, what to do in the case of a, 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 an envenomation. Great to have on your phone because you might think you know it, but as soon as the shit hit the fans, you'll forget everything you know. So it's good to have a reference that you can just look up on your phone. Um, talking of phones and GPSs, I would always, if I'm in a remote area, have the nearest hospitals pre-programmed into the GPS or my phone. Because again, you don't want to be all fingers and thumbs when you're crapping yourself because your best mate's just been bitten by something nasty. You don't want to spend time trying to get that into the GPS. So have those pre-programmed in. And remember, anything that needs a charger will run out of charge the, the minute you absolutely need it. So I would also have routes pre-printed out if I'm in a remote area. Hard copy. I know most of you won't even remember what hard copies are. But a hard copy route to your, you know, to your nearest hospitals because your GPS will fuck up the minute you really need it, 100%. Oh, it's, that's just life. Um, always have spare chargers while you're out in the field. Um, I always, I also carry a um, 
universal charger that works um that's a solar powered one so that you just hang it off your rucksack so that's charging up just while you're walking around just as an emergency backup um mostly for photography because you know you don't want to take you, you you find your best snake ever and then your camera batteries go down but it's also useful to you know you want an emergency charge for your phone when you when you absolutely need it thinking back to scott always take more water with you than you actually need um you know yourself when you're walking up at altitude flipping rocks and you're you know you're walking uphill you are sweating a lot more than you probably realize you are so you really do need to keep hydrated and that's difficult because if there's four of you in a car and you want to be drinking like a minimum of say a minimum of four liters that's a lot of water you need straight away that takes a lot of boot space up so that's something to think about um and sunblock something that everyone sort of forgets but sunburn can ruin a trip for you you know sunburn oh and the other thing i would totally recommend is antihistamine tablets um i was uh, on a trip the Pyramid mountains and i got bitten by a horsefly and uh, it's horrible terrain it's like 45 degree slopes which is scrub bushes on it's like white stone so the sun just beats off of it all day long it's very very barren and unpleasant and the only wildlife that you see are these huge horseflies. I got bitten by a horsefly and my legs swelled up to twice the size and I couldn't bend it. Um, so I had to take, fortunately we managed to get some antihistamines which made it manageable so that I could continue herping. It was painful, but I could, I could keep going. Um, so just little things like that in your kit, antihistamines, um, loads of wound cleaning stuff, ticks, um, a lot of areas we go in, particularly in the United States, you know, the score with ticks, you know, leads to things like Lyme's disease. Always take a tick removing tool with you. I was in Macedonia and I got a massive tick in the center of my chest. I ended up having to go to the local vet uh, to have it removed because the doctors were shut. So uh, carry your own tick tool if you can. Uh, and don't be afraid to get naked in front of your chums on the trip and check each other for ticks. Yeah, whenever I go anywhere remote, my first aid kit is enough for me to conduct minor operations on people if I need to. It's better to have it and not use it than, uh, than need it and not have it. Uh, these are extreme incidents. Herping is safe and fun. I've been at it for decades and we're still here. In our upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking to different herpers and talk about their dream target species and what it took to get those target species and what they're still doing to try to, to see that species in the wild. We're going to talk about specific places and equipment, and we're just going to try to break down field herping and, and just share the passion for how awesome it really is. I want to give a big thank you to all the contributors to this episode, for all the people that came on and let us tell their stories and talk about some of the issues that you may run into in the field to help the next herpin trip that you have be the safest that it can be. If you want to support the podcast, the best way that you can do is just like, subscribe, share it around. If you want to get in contact with us, you can reach out by email at info at moreliapythonradio.com. 
you want to see what else we have going on, please check out MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Thank you. And until next time, safe herping.